So an elderly couple had just learned how to send text messages. One afternoon, the wife decided to send her husband a romantic text. So she wrote, If you're laughing, send me your smile. If you're crying, send me your tears. If you're sleeping, send me your dreams. She waited a few moments. Sure enough, her husband texted back, I'm on the toilet. Please advise. (laughs) What else can I say to that other than, yes, it's been a crappy year for all of us. But here we are, gathered once again, both, both near and far, doing our best to start to celebrate together another Jewish New Year, another chance for self-reflection, another opportunity to take a breath and do our best to be our best once again. I may have told you probably a long time ago about a fortune cookie that changed my life. It was an ordinary Chinese restaurant somewhere in the San Fernando Valley, literally over 40 years ago. At the end of the meal, I broke open the cookie, and this is what the fortune said. You already know the answer. You already know the answer. Oh, my God, I thought. What answer? Wait, I thought again. What's the question? And that thought has followed me every day of my life ever since. What are the questions that really matter? And what are the answers that we already know? So tonight, here's one. A simple question that, that could change your life. So close your eyes, take a breath, and ask yourself this question. Who am I when I'm at my best? Who am I when I'm at my best? It's, it's that simple and yet a life-changing kind of question. Who am I when I show up as the best version of myself? What am I doing? Who am I with? In fact, where in the world am I? And therefore, what would it take for me to be that person more often every day of my life? I've literally been thinking about that question ever since. And it came back to me all the more powerfully during literally a life-changing experience I had just as the pandemic was starting. I had the privilege of spending the day at Lancaster State Prison, the largest prison in California, over 3,000 incarcerated men, as a volunteer with an amazing nonprofit called Healing Dialogue in Action. Healing Dialogue brings together people wounded by violence, both victims, families, and offenders. They go into prisons. They work with incarcerated men in a process called restorative justice, where perpetrators have an opportunity literally to take responsibility for the impact of their choices and their actions, not only on the families of the victims, but on their own families as well. So I I had no idea what to expect as I sat in a circle of 10 incarcerated men and two women two women whose sons had been killed by men just like those men in the circle. And my dear friend, Javier Starring, with whom I've worked on issues of criminal justice reform in the past, who now runs Healing Dialogue in Action. So after a few opening moments of sort of guided breathing and quiet meditation, we listened in silence as a woman who volunteers in the prison 
read a letter written by the mother of a teenager who had killed another young man to the mother of the man her own son had killed. When the letter was over, as you can imagine, the emotion in the room was palpable. And then slowly, one by one, the men in my circle picked up a a talking candle and began to tell their stories. And for the next two hours, I listened as one after another began with his name, how long he'd been down, meaning in prison, how long his sentence was, and what hearing that letter evoked in him as he reflected on his own life journey. First was Alex. He picked up the candle, and he said, I've been down for 23 years. September 16, 1996, when I was 17 years old, I killed Carlos Fuente and was given a sentence of 50 years to life. At the time, I didn't know anything different. I was in the gang in my neighborhood, and I just did what I was told and what was expected of me, and really, I didn't even think there was anything wrong with it. After all, if you don't kill them, they're going to kill you, right? Like I said, I was 17. Over the years, I started going to classes here and talking to volunteers, and eventually I began to realize the true impact of what I'd done. Even though I knew they would never see it, I wrote a long letter to the family of the boy I killed, telling them how sorry I was for what I'd done and the pain I had caused them, and and telling them that those seconds were life-changing both for him, for them, for my family, and for me. And they only wish I could go back and make a different choice. Then AJ took the candle and said, I've been down for 20 years. I grew up hardly ever seeing my father. One day when I was 16, my father came for a visit, and he took me, put me in the car when he pulled out a gun and shot and killed someone. He was convicted and sent to prison, and I was given a sentence of 36 years to life. And I've been in prison ever since. This is where I've grown up. This is where I learned the real lessons about life and the importance of taking responsibility for who I am and what I say and the man I can continue to become if I ever get out. My dream is still to have a family and be the kind of man my own son could be proud of. Then Joseph. Joseph, sitting right next to me, 6'4", 285 pounds, tattoos everywhere. I admit, not my usual seatmate. Joseph quietly started to cry. picked up the candle and literally through his tears he said, I grew up without really any family at all. In fact, I started my own family with my first kid at the age of 13 and was on my own always. I I lived doing whatever I had to do to get by. There were these guys I knew who sold drugs, so I did that. And eventually I had three kids and a wife. And then one day when I was out, six people came into my house held a gun to my daughter's head, made my wife open the safe, stole all her money, and then held the gun to her and raped her. I tracked them down, and I killed two of them, a girl that was with them and one of the guys. Of course, I got arrested, and I'd been down for 29 years. I was sentenced to life without possibility of parole. 
Look, he said, I was angry and justified my killing for years because of what they'd done. And then I started taking classes here and meeting the families of victims and, and talking to them and realizing the impact of how I lived my life and the choices I made. And eventually I realized there really is no justification for killing another human being. And I carry that with me every single day of my life. I, too, have written letters to the families of the people I killed, even knowing they'll never read them. But just wanting to say how sorry I was, how sorry I am for taking their lives, and if I could, I would ask their forgiveness. So he continued to cry, and I kind of spontaneously put my arms around him, which was no easy feat, by the way. And he said... I've come to realize that forgiving myself is the hardest thing of all. And I work on that every single day of my life. And I try to be the best person in here that I can for the other guys, because at least that's something that I can do. So what did I learn as I listened to the heartbreaking stories of young men who grew up in worlds designed for failure and violence and fear? Well, first, immense gratitude for the incredible privilege of my own life that was so radically different from every one of those tortured men. And the second lesson I learned was that these incarcerated killers taught me more about true repentance, what real tshuva actually means than than literally any high holiday text that I've ever read. I learned what it truly means to experience the personal redemption that comes from within, without the promise of external reward or even acknowledgement, with a true turning of the heart, a bearing of the soul, stripping oneself bare for all to see, for the God of secrets to see, for fellow frail and imperfect human beings to see actually looks like. And it was a profoundly humbling experience for me. I, who grew up and lived my entire life with such white and middle-class privilege that like the water for the fish, I hardly ever even realized that it surrounds me every day and is the very context of my being and of my every success in life. I sat hugging this imposing, scary-looking murderer as he, as he literally wept in my arms with regret and guilt and losses too numerous to name, profound sadness at all the pain that he has endured and caused in his life. And I silently asked God that I might find the inner strength, that I too might find the inner strength and resolve to examine my own life and my own choices as fearlessly, as courageously as every single one of the men in that healing circle was doing in their lives faced with the endless dark night of lifelong incarceration. So here I am today, standing in the light. Actually, literally standing in your light. Really. That you have bestowed upon me and continue to, day after day, after even 35 years as a rabbi in the Palisades. I I realized that day at Lancaster Prison, with those men, how how easily we grumble and we quetch over nothing. How easily now in the climate of 21st century America, of this 
21st century pandemic world in which we are living, that we disparage and discount each other over nothing. You're still a Democrat. You support that politician. You said that about Israel. You're taking his side in the divorce. Oh, I can't be friends with you because you're still friends with her. And on and on. How have we lost our common story? How have we lost our memory of what truly matters and substituted them for pettiness and smallness and bullying and insults? How have we forgotten that we are all part of an age-old drama that goes back thousands of years, that our collective history has defined us and our collective greatness for millennia. We are better than that. We are bigger than that. We are grander than that. We're part of the same story, the greatest story ever told, the story of a people and a civilization that rose phoenix-like from the ashes of slavery and the ultimate degradation to help change the world, to be an orla goyim, a light unto the nations. How have we as a people and a nation become so petty, so small in our thinking, so parochial, so binary, us versus them about everything? That we can't even see each other anymore, that we can't even hear each other anymore. Believe it or not, the most important lesson I learned that day is found in the first two words of the best-known prayer in every Jewish service, including this one. Although you and I have said it literally a thousand times, it was that afternoon in that healing circle that I understood more powerfully than at any time in my entire 45 years as a rabbi what they really mean. There in that cold common room Neon lights glaring in that sacred minion of incarcerated men, each of whom had named out loud the men, the women, the boys that they had once murdered with name and place and date of their greatest regret. It was that moment that I truly understood the transformative power of those two simple Hebrew words, Shema Yisrael. Shema Yisrael. It isn't hear, O Israel, as it's so often translated. It is, of course, listen. Listen, listen, Israel. It's not enough to simply hear what someone says. It's not enough to simply hear the words. The real challenge is always to listen to the meaning, listen to the silent, often muffled crying. Listen to the pain within the heart behind the words. That's true listening, and that's what's missing today. That's what hit me harder than anything through the the tears of the men longing for forgiveness, opening their hearts and pouring out into the bright light of that healing circle. I mean, there they were, hiding from their own inner demons and nightmares no more, standing in literally the brightest of all lights, the light of true authentic self-reflection, crying rivers of tears of regret and sorrow, lost youth, lost life itself, and a longing for redemption deeper, more profound than I have felt in almost any high holiday service ever. So yes, we we come here every year to pray and ask forgiveness. We come each year, we 
we pound our chests, we say, with a long litany of sins, which we have sinned against someone. And even if with the best of spiritual intentions, we go through the motions, we say the words, we read the prayers, we hear the cantor and the choir sing, the rabbi preach, and then we go home and mostly start again with our lives as we left them outside the sanctuary. Well, sitting in that prayer circle in prison with those men who grew up in those gangs which at first felt like such a gargantuan disconnect from my own privileged youth and family and life slowly, subtly transformed for me into one of the most profound religious experiences of my life. I thought if these men can be brave enough to openly share and listen to each other's struggles and regrets and shame and pleas behind the tears for forgiveness and reconciliation, can we do any less? Imagine this sanctuary, what it would feel like. Or imagine what your homes would feel like if each of us opened our own hearts with as much passion, as much authentic yearning for redemption as every one of those broken yet spiritually yearning men who languish every day in Lancaster. I suspect if we even had half of their passion for true tshuva from the slings and arrows of our own misfortunes, the cries of our hearts might actually reach the very gates of heaven. I was privileged to be on a panel once at UCLA with perhaps the most venerated basketball coach of all time, John Wooden. And Wooden said something that day that I never forgot. He said, you can't live a perfect day without doing something for someone who will never be able to repay you. I thought of Wooden's wisdom as I listened to those humble, deeply self-reflective men in prison, and I realized that day, they became my rabbis. They were my teachers. So let them be your teachers for this sacred season as well. After all, one of the most powerful teachings in in all of Jewish tradition is the story in the Talmud that after Moses smashed the first tablets of the Ten Commandments and went down the mountain and destroyed the golden calf, he went back up the mountain. As we all know, he carved another set of tablets. And then God commanded him to put the broken fragments of the first set in the ark and carry them along with the new whole tablets throughout the 40-year journey and into the promised land. Jewish mystical tradition teaches in the Zohar that every human heart is the ark. For every heart is a broken heart. And it's only in the space that exists between the broken parts where the Shekhinah, the gentle divine presence, can live. Like the famous phrase of Ernest Hemingway, that the world breaks everyone, and afterward many are stronger in the broken places. So yes, those men reminded me that day of the answer that we all already know. That it isn't how many times you fall down, but how many times you get up again, that matters in life. Like that breathtaking moment in this year's Olympics when Dutch runner Sifan Hassan was knocked down flat on the track. 
in the final lap of her 1,500-meter heat. And with 11 runners in front of her, she got up, she started running, and in the final straightaway, as I'm sure you know, she passed five of the fastest runners in the world to win the race. It's never about the falling and always about the getting up again. In this year of such brokenness for us all, may we all be stronger in the broken places. May we all find the strength and the courage of those incarcerated men to open and to soften our hearts to each other and to ourselves in the year ahead. Shana tova umituka to a better and sweeter year for us all. Amen. Thank you. And now, um, is that mine? And now, Elohai Nishama, this beautiful prayer that we say traditionally every day, a prayer that for me speaks of gratitude for the miracles we have in our own lives every day and my lovely wife, Didi, will join me somewhere. Shana Tova. Yeah, I was plugged into this before. I'm going to unplug it and plug back into this. Because this was what I was plugged into before. Shana, 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 Shana,